We looked for the last couple of weeks uh, at Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who, to those who are called according to His purpose, to those who love God. And we said that God was, first of all, sovereign, and we said that He was good, and because He is good and sovereign, therefore God alone is, is worthy and qualified and able to determine the good. To, to have a good purpose for which he works and is working all things. And, and we tried to be very specific there because what we see in verse 29 really helps us understand, again, why we can trust verse 28. Why, why can we trust verse 28? It's because of what we see in verses 29 and 30. And so the main point this morning, the, ma- the main point that I want us to walk away from here with this morning and to understand and trust is this, and you see it on your handout. Everything about the assurance Paul wants us to grasp that the gospel offers rests. The word is rests. It rests upon God and not man. God himself is our assurance. Understand that. The, the reason that the, we you, you look at the beginning of, of verse 29, verse 29 teaches us why we can trust verse 28. The first word in that verse is for. Verse 29 begins with the word for that it tells us this is why we can trust verse 28 is because of what we see in verse 29. This is. This is God's doing sovereignly. This is God's doing ultimately. This is, this is what makes what Paul writes, it makes it solid. It's what makes it trustworthy. It's what makes it dependable. We can trust that all things work together for good because ultimately God is sovereign. But beyond that, what we learn Again, at the end of verse 28, it says, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29 tells us what that purpose is. God has a purpose, verse 28 told us. Why nothing is wasted, why, why nothing is accidental, while, while nothing is meaningless. And again, this brings us to a certainty. This, this leads us to and assurance, my life and, and even my circumstances, even my salvation, they're not accidental. It's not random. God has a purpose behind every single thing that he does, every single thing that he allows. Nothing, nothing about this is uncertain. The whole point here, as we said in Romans 8, the whole truth hanging over Romans 28 is assurance. Paul wants us to be assured. And ultimately, what Paul is saying is that our assurance is is rooted in God himself. And this is immensely important. Again, this is why Paul can say in verse 28 that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose. 
And we can rest assured that no matter what we face, God is working all things to that purpose. We saw that even specifically in the life of Joseph. And the reason why Paul can say this is because ultimately it's not our doing. It's God's doing ultimately. Paul traces everything here in verses 29 and 30. Every single thing here is traced back to the work of God. Again, with the goal of producing assurance in believers, certainty no matter what we face. No condemnation. No separation. From start to finish, this is the work of God. Don't miss that. And again, as soon as I say that, people's minds go to places that they shouldn't go. And we're going to talk about that hopefully even today and help clear that up. This doctrine has been abused. It's been mistreated. And, and, because of, and, 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 and also we have to come to this remembering Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Our ways are not God's ways. Our ways are higher than God's ways. Our thoughts aren't even God's thoughts. At, at the end of all of this, you know, it's going to get worse in the sense of struggling. It, it's going to get heavier when we look at chapters 9, 10, and 11. And Paul himself, keep this in mind, Paul himself, at the, at the end of these heavy, weighty, meaty passages in 1133 of Romans, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Ultimately, God's purpose is his glory. We've got to understand that. Every single part of my being and every single part of your being, we want to be the center of the universe. We want to be what it's all about. We want it to be about us. And, and listen, God is for us. Don't, Paul is assuring that God is for you, but ultimately he's for you to his glory. To his glory. And Paul can, Paul can say what he said in Romans 8, 28, be, because God's sovereignty assures it. Causes all things to work together. And you see it on your handout. The foundation, the word is foundation of everything here is built upon and rests upon God and not God and not you and me. That's why verse 28 is assured. Because God is sovereign. He reigns. That's the foundation. Th this is what Paul is saying here. Don't, don't make these don't make these words bad words. Don't manipulate the meaning to suit your understanding or the way you or I would have done them or the way we like to think about them. It, when, when we do that, because when we do that, listen, you rob the assurance. You rob yourself of the assurance, the very thing that these verses were meant to instill in you and to instill in me 
when we adulterate the words or when we try to massage them to meet our own, our own ways, you rob yourself of the assurance. And the, 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 listen, the goal behind all of that, when we do that, we want to make ourselves supreme. We want to be in charge. And don't miss the forest for the trees here. And so as we walk through these, hang in there. That's all I can say is hang in there. All right, hang in there. These are good truths. These are good truths. So look what he says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. All right, again, look at A on your handout. The first truth I want you to see here. Paul assures believers that no matter what they face, they will not be condemned by God because God foreknew them and thus promises to work all things for good according to his purpose. This is the beginning, right out of the chute, this is the beginning of the supposed bad words in this passage. We struggle with the word foreknew, that God foreknew. And how we interpret this often pits us against each other, and I would say even against what it means in the biblical text. Some come to this word and they see this word as meaning that God knew ahead of time who would believe in Christ, that he saw it from afar, and thus he picked them to be saved. And they would say that this verse means that believers don't believe because of God's sovereignty. Rather, God foreknew that someone would leave and so he picked them because he foreknew they would believe. I don't believe that is, that's not what this word means. In large part, because that doesn't offer anyone assurance. The, the word foreknow means to know beforehand. It could mean, listen, it could mean that God picked people because of what he saw they would do. But that doesn't fit, not only this text, it doesn't fit the majority of the other texts where that word is used. And let me give you two rationales. I'm trying to walk through this. I try to approach this verse. Okay, Chris, forget what you know or what you think you know. Come to this honestly and just let's walk through this. Two rationales why I don't believe that it means God foresaw, you, God foresaw Chris doing something and therefore I'll choose him. Number one, here's the first one of the reasons why I don't believe that. God foreknows everybody and everything. He's omniscient. He is all-knowing. That is not what Paul is referring to here. This is special knowledge for a purpose. This is not just general knowledge. Secondly, if God chooses people based on what they would decide to do, then who becomes the ground of our salvation? You and I. Totally. And I'm not saying we're not responsible. Don't go there. That's a false conclusion as well, and we'll get there. But ultimately, it rests upon God. It rests upon God and His mercy and His grace. And chapter 9 will show us that as well. In chapter 9, Paul writes chapter 9 to vindicate the fact that God is not unjust in any way, shape, or form. Verse 6 and verse 14, he makes that explicitly clear of chapter 9. And the word foreknow here, go in the Hebrew, it goes beyond mere intellectual knowledge. It points to a, a personal, it points to, it's relationally based. And that's what you see on your handout. The word foreknew means to enter into a relationship, 
to choose or determine before to enter into a relationship. It, it, he's, what he's saying is it rests on God. God in his grace and mercy has chosen to save. He's taken what we'll see in a minute, initiative. L- listen to, listen to uh, Amos chapter 2. I mean chapter 3, verse 2. Find it here. <clears throat> Amos 3 2. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. God chose, He initiated. Okay, listen to Deuteronomy 7 6. Again, think, we'll see it in a minute. Initiation. For you are a holy people, this is talking about Israel. To the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Out of all the nations, out of all the peoples, he chose Abraham. His sovereign choice. You, you go to even Ephesians 1.4 and he talks about before the foundation of the world, God is setting this in motion. He's sovereignly doing this. And more than anything else this morning, when you think about this, I want you to think about the word initiative, and that's the next word in your handout. What Paul is doing here is assuring believers of their status and resting that assurance in the divine initiative of God to reconcile sinners back to himself. Initiative. If you could remember anything more than anything, initiative. And I want to explain the beauty, but also the necessity of, of this, don't go to the extremes and don't go to the wrong places. It is because of, because of God's initiative that we can rest in eight twenty-eight. Because think about this: if we see foreknew as God seeing something we did and then choosing us, then our choices and our faith become the grounds, not His love, not His mercy, not His grace. We become sovereign. And God's is up there just reacting to us as if he needs our permission to act in certain ways. And that, that really makes God no more powerful than you or me as a father. Look, I spent, we spent, even here in this church, I spend my life reacting to, the, to what other people do. And, and listen, it's no fun. Versus being sovereign. Listen to 2 Timothy Listen to 2 Timothy 1.9. 2 Timothy 1.9. Start in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Here it is. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. Do you see that word again? Purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed. God is working everything towards a purpose. And and think about this. Paul's own life reflected what he's saying here, and he's trying to assure believers here that God is indeed working all things for a purpose. Listen, God did not look ahead in history and say, whoa, man, I'm glad Paul chose me because, you know, he'd make a good apostle. I could probably use him. That's not how it worked. 
Paul himself says that in Galatians 1.15. That's not how it worked. God, God did that to Paul. And, and again, it goes for all the disciples. If you go back to John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. You see the divine initiative on God's part? Grace. It's about God taking broken, sinful people and using them for his glory, saving them. And only, only purposed divine initiative fits here so that God becomes our assurance. Listen, and think about this. We're too fickle to be trusted. How many of you have chosen something one day and three days later unchosen it? We're not trustworthy. We're not trustworthy in our marriages. We're not trustworthy at work. We're not trustworthy in our friendships. Meaning, we can't ultimately be relied upon. We are, we are unfaithful. We're fickle. And the picture here that Paul is assuring believers is that God has taken the divine initiative to start something, and he's taken the divine initiative to finish what he starts. I mean, that's why even in Philippians 1.6, being confident in this very thing, he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. I'm not sure that that's exactly, I think the truth that people want that verse to say, I'm not sure that's exactly what Paul is saying there. I think Paul is saying it here, though. But the point is this, even in Philippians 1.6, God finishes what he starts. Therefore, we can have assurance, right? And even in Philippians 1.6, they had started supporting Paul. He gets thrown in prison. All this stuff, they cease supporting Paul. And now they've revived their support for Paul. And Paul is saying, don't you worry, guys. I'm content because ultimately, guess who's been providing for me all these years? God. And God will finish what he started. The good work, I would argue in Philippians, is their support of Paul. But even there, Paul was assured in God, not the Philippians, that God would finish what he started. Right? He, Paul didn't even trust the Philippians with their own support of him. Paul said, ultimately, you're supporting me because God is the one doing it through you. The whole point of Romans 8.29 is assurance. That you can be confident, believer, that God is for you, not against you. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rest assured in that. Divine initiative. But, but not only foreknowledge, Paul assures B, you see on your handout, believers that no matter what they face, they will not be condemned by God because those whom God foreknew, he predestined them and thus promises to work all things for good according to a purpose. This is another one of the words that we don't like to talk about at parties. You want to, you know, you want to, you want to get a row from people? Walk up into a, 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 at 11 o'clock today in your grow group, or, well, now it's too late because I'm going to talk about it today. What do you think about predestination? You better duck or get ready to go at it. The, the word invokes huge emotion. 
listen, you see it in your handout, the word means to mark out beforehand. We, we saw that in Acts 4.28 where God predestined even Jesus' crucifixion. Did man have a responsibility in it? Yeah, these men crucified Jesus according to the what? Predetermined plan of God. God was sovereign over it. It didn't absolve responsibility. Again, even here, people make God out as knowing something about us and then acting based on what we will do. But think through, again, think through the implications of that. It would mean, if, if that is the case, God would be formulating a plan based upon what sinners would do. Think about that. Think about that. Rather than what God would do. Thus, we become sovereign of sorts. And then salvation would not be according to God's purpose. It'd be according to man's will. And our assurance, therefore, falls to pieces. If, God, if, if these words only mean that God knew in advance, then he's really not purposed to save a people for his glory. He's waiting to see what we'll do. And our assurance falls apart. And, and, and even beyond that, we need to be really careful how we handle these passages because to question this really runs close, if not crossing the line of accusing God of wrongdoing. Now God begins to withhold something from somebody that they deserved. That's the logical conclusion. And that's exactly why Paul writes Romans 9. The question is, hey, not all Israel is saved. What's the problem? Is the problem with God? Paul says the problem is not with God. It's not with God. God is free to bestow mercy on whomever he wishes. Why? Because none are deserving. To state otherwise is to accuse God of wrongdoing, that he has withheld something from somebody that they had a right to or that they deserved, and that is not true. Beyond the fact that that completely goes against what we saw, listen to what Paul concluded Romans 1 through 3 with. This is about you and me in our unsaved state. Born this way. Born this way. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No one's see, no one seeking after God on their own. I mean, if it were a matter of God waiting to see what men would do, he would look to the future and do our sin. He would see no one believing him. Think about that. That's what he would see. If he did not divinely initiate. If he did not take the initiative. And that's what makes grace so amazing. We have offended God. If that were our relationship, think about that. If I offended you, you would expect me to be the one to initiate the reconciliation, right? Because I'm the offender. 
And yet we have offended God, and yet merciful you see the offendee, I think that's right, initiating the reconciliation. That's what's amazing about God. We've offended him, we've gone astray, we've left. And yet God is initiating a way for us to be reconciled. That's, that's what Luke 15 and 16 are all about. The parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin and the, the parable of the lost son. The whole point is to show the awesomeness of God. That God would, that God would make a way for sinners to be reconciled. That's amazing grace. We, the, the, the point is, we don't naturally on our own reject ourselves and turn away from self. God's got to supernaturally act to make that possible, to make that even happen. God had to take the initiative. No one would choose God on their own. No one would pursue God on their own. None who do good, Romans 3, on their own. God took the initiative. And that's grace. Even 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds and the hearts of the unbelieving. God has to supernaturally act and undo that. But, but instead, of, instead of making this so divisive and such a bad word, we're, we're neutering it of the beauty and the assurance. I mean, the Bible consistently shows that salvation is grace. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer. That word granted means it's grace. Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you are saved through faith and not by works, lest anyone would boast. You, you, we've got to see the divine initiative here. And, and whenever, whenever it, 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 this, this, again, there are two examples in Acts 26 and 2 Peter 3 where men knew something in advance and therefore they acted. But when God is the subject, he's sovereign over it. He's not responding to men. And you see it on your handout. God isn't said here to foreknow what people will do, though he does, but rather to know the people. What you see in this verse is God knows the person. It's a relationship. Romans 11.2 God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And there are countless other examples. And the same could be said even of biblical prophecy. Think about this. You see it in the handout. God doesn't just foreknow how history will happen to turn out and then report it back to us. No, no. He ordains how history will turn out and tells us ahead of time. He didn't just look ahead and see, oh, Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Let me tell him that ahead of time. Oh, you know what? Jesus is going to have to flee to Egypt. Let me tell him that ahead of time so they know what's going on. No, that's not how it works. And yet, men were responsible. And God's sovereignty here, his choosing are good things. Before you ever chose to follow God, God took the initiative. He took the initiative. And that's the point. That's why we can be assured. 
It's not dependent upon you and me. It rests. It rests on the character of God. And, and again, that doesn't at all mean that humans are not responsible or culpable for their decisions. We're not robots. We do make choices. We do have wills. Again, even in John 5, he says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, I think it's verse 39 and 40, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And look what Jesus says to them. And you do not come to me because you are unwilling. Why didn't they come to him? Because they weren't willing. It was clear. They refused. And yet, John 6, 37, he says, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. Let me ask you a question. Is not crucifying your son publicly on a cross for all the world to see, would that not qualify as God drawing? How about sending prophet after prophet to declare about man's sinfulness and the truthfulness of God and the fact that a Messiah was coming? Is that not God drawing? How about, how about recording 66 books so we would have for all eternity that we could glean the truthfulness and see the character of God, sending His Son in the flesh to be a picture of God, to reveal God. And Jesus saying, whoever comes to me, would, would, would your, the yoke of the burden would be removed, and my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find Rest for your souls. Is that not an invitation? Is that not a drawing? Is God sovereign? Yes. And yet he has put his son on a cross. Romans 1 told us that he put his word in your heart. So that those who sin, they know better. They reject the revelation that God's given them. They suppress the truth that God has made known to them. I don't believe for one minute this beautiful verse is meant for you and I to leave arguing about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I think they're there so we'd walk away being sure of our salvation. They're not there for us to try to figure out how it works. Because here's how it works. Where the gospel is preached, people repent. That's how it works. We'll see that in Romans 10. I don't know how my car starts in the morning, right? I know this. I put the key in the ignition, and I turn the key, and it starts. Kelly learned this morning, when you get to the place, you got to put it in drive for it to turn off. I don't know how that works. The other way, whatever. You know, forgive me for even making fun. I was laughing about that in my head. That's where ADD kicks in. I've been thinking about that all morning. Forgive me. How do I get that in there? No. Not let my kids be the brunt of the joke. It's been nice knowing y'all, Stuarts. Um, I really don't want to go through the habit of building onto this place. So let's just, no, no, see, forgive me. I don't know how electricity works, right? I know this. I flip that switch on at the house, boom, there's lights. I don't even care how it works. I just want it to work. Right? That's why Jesus says again, how beautiful are those who bring the good news. God has given you and I the privilege 
of being a part of what he's sovereignly doing. Preach the gospel. Share the gospel. The good news of this is it's not up to me to be slick. It's not up to me to worry about having the right words to say or walk away. I, sh I had an email just this week. Blew my mind. Somebody literally emailed me and said, can you tell me about Christianity? I'm like, what? I, I was, I, Melissa will tell you, I was like, Melissa, this is a scam. Something's wrong here. I emailed the person, I said, no. And this is, this is what he said. This is what he said. I am a Muslim who lives in Turkey, and I've heard about Christianity. I was on the, I was on the, the web. Somehow he found our website, I don't know how, of all the websites, not John MacArthur, not David Platt, not people who know what they're doing, like, email, those guys have written books that I'm reading. And you're calling me? I'm like, what? So, long, long, detailed email. And he emailed back and said, thank you, you have given me much to think about. Listen, I don't have the power to save that person. Right? I remember sitting across from a, a couple who were followers of Islam and, and sharing with them, and the man said to me, are you trying to convert me? I said, buddy, it was him and his wife. I said, I don't have the power to convert you. My job is to preach the gospel to you and allow the Spirit to do his work. And I said, here's the deal, no different than this. Think about this. Suppose somebody who followed Islam came to your door today and shared Islam with you. What? I ain't turning. They don't have the power to get me to turn either. But, but God could, again, follow the illustration, God would supernaturally have to do something to get me to turn away from everything I know to follow. That's what Paul is saying here. God is supernaturally involved in this. Therefore, we can be assured. This is not about fickle men and women just running around doing their own thing, hoping it works out. And you see it on a handout. God must act and initiate salvation or else it would never happen because he is taking initiative. And because he is taking initiative, we can rest assured. I mean, if we really see ourselves the way that Romans 1 through 3 painted us prior to salvation, God had to initiate it. He had to do something. Take comfort in that. Don't be divided over that. Let God be God. Uh, J.I. Packer, I was reading this week, he's one of my favorite, like, I want to tell this guy, email him. I don't even know if he's alive, but email him. No, he's alive. He's 93. He wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Listen to what he wrote. Two facts show this, that God is ultimately sovereign over even salvation. Number one, here's his points. You give thanks to God for your salvation. Why do you do that if you're responsible? You do it because you know in your heart that God was responsible. You did not save yourself. He saved you. Number two, you pray for the conversion of others. You ask God to work in them. And I love this part. Here's what he closes with. On our feet, we may have arguments about God's sovereignty, but on our knees, we are all agreed. Deep down, listen to me. We can argue about it and we can fight it and we can struggle with it. Deep down, you want a sovereign God. For you and I to have peace, 
As Graham Scroggie said, there, he whose God is sovereign will be at peace. That's the point. And, and again, it doesn't mean that you and I are, it doesn't mean our decisions are inconsequential. It doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility. And I thought about, how do I illustrate this? And, and forgive me, but I thought about a tapestry that's marvelously woven together. Listen, when it's done right, you don't recognize the individual strands, right? It looks like one beautiful thing. But imagine what happens when you start going and trying to pick apart the individual strands and follow the individual strands to see how it all works. You know what you do? You ruin the beauty of the tapestry. There's a beautiful picture in this Bible of God sovereignly making a way for sinners to be saved. And there's a beautiful picture of whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there's a beautiful picture of God graciously inviting you and I to be involved and have the joy of sharing the greatest story, the greatest truth in all the world. Let God be God and us do our part. Don't try to pick it apart. That'd be about as foolish as me ripping the drywall off my house to try to trace the wires to figure out how electricity works. Just flip the switch. Share the gospel. In season and out of season, preach the gospel. It's not up to me being slick. That's the beauty here. And again, you see it on your handout, leave the mysteriousness of God's sovereignty alone. And instead of questioning it because we don't understand it, rest in it. There's a mysteriousness there. In my mind, listen, I don't have this all, in my mind, in my mind is way too small to figure out how God can be sovereign and I can be responsible. And yet to God, it's perfectly fine. They're, they're like parallel train tracks. They never cross. They get to the train station at the same time. Leave it alone. There's a mysteriousness. There. And, and I want to real quickly dispel, because of the mysteriousness, because this is not how we would have done things, we, we struggle. And I want to dispel some misunderstandings here on your handout. They're on your handout. I want to dispel some. Number one, these are false conclusions because of this. Some argue that foreknowledge predestination fosters arrogance since it is alleged that God's elect boast of their favored status. If you really understand the gospel, if you really understand this Bible, the the opposite of arrogance would actually be true. Paul goes to great lengths to say that the gospel excludes boasting. This truth ought to fill us with wonder and amazement that God would ever initiate salvation with a sinner such as me. That's the response. You ought to be overwhelmed and amazed. You ought to be humbled that God would do this. Not arrogant. Some argue that foreknowledge, predestination fosters uncertainty, leaving people wondering if they're chosen or not. That's not at all the point of this. The context of chapter 8 is the total opposite. It ought to create assurance. Unbelievers are not sitting around wondering about their salvation and wondering if they're chosen or not. And yet a sovereign God uses you and I to interrupt that ignorance with the truthfulness of the gospel. And God uses our beautiful feet to share the gospel, to awaken them to their sinfulness, and to save them. 
That's how it works. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what awakens, the hearing of the word. Who has God put that at the feet of? You and me, brothers and sisters. Satan has, Satan has got us to sit in here and just argue about these things and forget the fact that we've been given a mission to just go share the truth. Some argue, three, that foreknowledge predestination fosters apathy, that human responsibility is undermined. And on the contrary, you never see that. They're seen laying side by side. We saw this in Joseph's own life. I can't tell you where one starts and one ends. There are beautiful tapestry woven together in every situation. It's a, it's a mystery. It's what's called an antinomy. It appears to be contradictory. But if we had all the facts, if we were God and had God's mind, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't seem that way. That's the point. God's sovereignty should free us to share with boldness, knowing it's not up to me. It's up to me to give a defense, to be faithful. Fourth, some argue that foreknowledge predestination fosters complacency and people live without moral constraint. Paul addressed this in Romans 6. That's a lie. The gospel never authors immorality. Never calls for that. Instead, he said in 6.12, Therefore, do not let sin reign over your mortal bodies that you may obey its lusts. The response to the gospel is that you then go living in light of the grace and the mercy that God has graciously revealed to you. Not complacent. You're never comfortable with sin. The, the gospel in me, I hate my sin. And I struggle with that every day. That's, I dare say, understanding, the more I understand this gospel, the more I understand this word, the struggle for me is the more I understand how I fall short. The more I understand how wretched I am. And the more I realize how much I need God to do in me what I can't do on my own totally. I hate my sin. Some argue that foreknowledge predestination fosters narrow-mindedness, causing people to be absorbed with themselves. Again, that's unbiblical. Isaiah 42 says the gospel was to bring light to the nations. It's not about you. 1 Peter 2.9, we saw it when we studied 1 Peter, says that our, we have been called to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Why has God saved you? To go forth and tell other sinners where they can find salvation. To proclaim the excellencies of God. Not to sit around arguing about these things. And you see there the answer to all of those objections it ought to create humility, not arrogance. It ought to create humility and not arrogance. The truths of 29 and 30 ought to create assurance, not uncertainty. These truths ought to create responsibility, not apathy. They ought to create holiness, not complacency with sin. And it ought to create mission, not narrow-mindedness.
this is an unbreakable chain. What Paul is saying is what God has began, he will finish. And he is taking everything in your life and he is using it for a purpose. Everything there you see on your handout. God has done everything that was needed for us to be saved from the wrath of God due our sin. He has made a way for that wrath to be averted and he placed it on Christ. Even in 1 Corinthians 3, people are following different people. And I got Apollos, and I got this, and I'm after this guy. And Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. I have a role. Plant and water. Plant and water. Plant and water. God sovereignly uses my planting and my watering to open the eyes of the blind to the goodness of the gospel. My responsibility and His sovereignty, they're running side by side. And the goal of this text is to create in believers the assurance, you see it in our handout, nothing can frustrate God's purposes for His people. And that purpose is what he says in verse 29, that we would be conformed to the image of his son, that we would be that Jesus Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's God's purpose. Hear me. It's not your happiness. It's not your material wealth. It's not your comfort. It's none of those things. It's that you and I, his people, would be conformed to the image of his son. In salvation, see the bigger picture. God is recreating what he originally created. Hear that. God created Eden and Adam and Eve, and they were perfect, and it was very good, and then they sinned. And in salvation, God is recreating that. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 5, everyone, in, everyone who is in Christ is a what? New creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He's recreating. And one day, Paul says, you will be glorified. He's called you. He's predestined you. He's called you. He justified you. That's Romans 3, 21 through 26. One day he will glorify you. One day you will see him as he is and you will be like him. 1 John 3. One day you'll be perfect. But in the process, God is chipping away little by little everything about our lives that doesn't look like his son that we would accurately represent him. And you see it on your handout. So certain is our salvation that Paul conceives that the Christian's glory is to be something that has in some ways already been determined. God's already see he already sees you as glorified. Hear that, believer. It's not in question. That's the certainty. But but it's also why we have the Bible. Because faith comes by hearing. And we look back at the history and you see God being faithful, faithful, faithful. And, and you see all the stories. That's Romans 15, 4. You see it in your handout. Our faith is a response to God's revelation about himself and all that he has done through grace. Satan does not want unbelievers to respond. And like we said, 2 Corinthians 4, he blinds them. And Romans 8 here tells us that God is taking the initiative to defeat Satan. In our sinfulness, we would never choose God on our own. 
And God has selflessly initiated this in spite of what he knows about you. Our flaws, our faults, our struggles, and yet God pursued you. He knows you. I mean, God knows Chris Basham more than Chris Basham knows Chris Basham. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that my heart is desperately wicked and I can't even understand it. No matter how sinful I think Chris Basham is, no matter how sinful you think Chris Basham is, here's the good news, I'm worse. You haven't seen the tip of it, of what I'm capable of. Apart from the grace of God. Oh, but for the grace of God. Who knows what Chris Basham would be like at 43? Oh, but for the grace of God. And the point Paul is saying, even in the midst of suffering, don't forget the context, this is in the midst of suffering. This is in the midst of battling, not being fully what we one day will be. Of We have been given the spirit of adoption, but we don't have all the... We don't have all the fullness of that adoption yet. We wait. We wait in hope. And you see it in a handout. This, this truth here in 2930, we're meant to fuel your hope that whatever you have, whatever you are, whatever you will go through or battle, it was not, nor is not, nor will not be pointless. It will not separate you from the love of God, but it will instead conform you to the very God who saved you. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 37, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. Not only do they not separate us from God, God uses them to conform us to God. The very thing that Satan wants to use to separate you from God, God uses to conform you to God. That's that's why Paul can say in 8, 37, we overwhelmingly conquer. We don't just barely, we don't win at the buzzer. And my challenge for you is this. Believer, be, it's not for us to figure out God's ways. We are to know this word. That's not at all what I'm saying. We are to study this word. And, and when we can't understand it, we trust in the character of the God who authored this word. When it doesn't make sense, we trust in the character of God who authored this word. And Paul writes this, believer, that you and I would be consumed with being conformed to the image of God. That's the purpose. That's what the predestination is. That's what it's all aiming towards. This is about being conformed. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. Don't miss that. So many people stop short. No, He predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. That you would look like Christ in all things. Don't miss that. Nothing about this stops at just mere salvation or or getting our ticket or whatever. You have been saved to be conformed to the image of Christ. So how are you doing? That's the question. And I would argue that the degree to which we're pursuing that, the degree to which we're seeing that in our lives is also what affects our sense of security. No different than, listen, if I was out fooling around all the time on, on Karen and being unfaithful in our vows, what do you think it'd be like when I was in her presence?
And yet when we're seeking to be faithful to our vows and we're seeking to sacrificially love one another, guess now what it's like to be in her presence. It's a joy to be in her presence. And I'm assured that she loves me. Even 1 John, he says, little children, I write these things that you would know. You ought not wonder if you're saved. You ought not doubt that. Those who trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, those who acknowledge that the wrath of God justly falls upon them because of their sin, and that sin has separated you from a holy God, the Bible says this, if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you ignore that, if you stiff arm that offer, listen, don't blame God. Romans 9, 6, God is not unjust. He's not unjust. That's the point. And believer, if you say, I've done that, are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Do you look more like Christ today than a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, two years ago? That's the question. That's what you've been saved for. That's the purpose. Predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. That Christ would get the glory in your life and my life. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. And Paul is saying, you can rest assured, believer, that God has a sovereign, good purpose for everything. That he is using whatever. And listen, I say that carefully. I say this all the time because every time I say that, all week I struggle with what's going on here and what people are battling with. I know we're a bunch of hurting people. I'll be honest with you, I, I, I struggle even in leading this church because every single day I feel woefully inadequate. And, and there's times where it's hard to enjoy anything because of knowing what's going on and knowing how people are hurting and knowing, but listen, even me, God, I have to go back and say, it's not about me. You're, maybe your glory is to preach Christ through a fool like me. Okay, do it. Do it, God. Maybe it's to prove, and I kid Cameron all this time, maybe it's God talked through the donkey in the Old Testament, maybe he can talk through a donkey in the New Testament. Hey, go ahead. And I don't say it, but seriously, and I'm not looking for sympathy. This is all about God. And sometimes the reason why God will strip us down because he's got to get the pride out. He's got to make it where we have nothing to boast about. And it's there that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. Even Philippians 2, have this attitude, guys, that was in Christ, that although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But you know what God, you know what Jesus did? He emptied himself of all his prerogatives, of all his rights, and made himself in the likeness of flesh, ultimately to die. That's what it means. That's why he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, because that's what Christ did. 
And if we run around here making it all about ourselves and what's good for me, and die, listen, we are not being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the work of the gospel. 